Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Macrovisor podcast. I'm joined by my wonderful co-host Aishan. We're going to be talking about some key macro data from last week, as well as some themes that we'll be talking about really soon on the Macrovisor website. Hey everyone, it's great to be back for another week off the podcast. We had a very, very busy week last week and a lot of economic data to cover. So we've covered most of them in our website, but we just wanted to go over the highlights of last week just so that we give everybody a sense of what's going on in the economy. So the biggest data point that came out last week was obviously the CPI data, the consumer price index data, which shows us basically inflation data or inflation numbers. Now, we know this is not the preferred gauge for the Fed, but the data was coming out the day before the FOMC meeting. And people were sort of looking at this number to kind of understand whether the Fed was going to go ahead and raise rates or not. And what we got from the number was a cooler headline number. So overall, inflation has slowed down. Right. So the increase in prices have slowed down quite a bit. And we saw the year on year number actually come in below the consensus. So it came in at 4%. And the consensus estimate was about 4.1%. Now, on the stickier side, which we call core inflation, which is inflation excluding food and energy, we saw this number come in line with what was expected. And this isn't something that people want, right? So we do want to see these beat the expectations come in lower and sort of show us that we're on a good trajectory. But it so happened that core inflation is remaining sticky. And it's something that the Fed has also been talking about. And we realized that this part of inflation, which doesn't include food and energy, is sort of not going down as fast as we had hoped. In fact, the Fed has revised up their estimates for core inflation from 3.6% to 3.9% until the end of the year. However, this is based on their preferred method of inflation, which is PCE inflation. So just going through the data, we saw that food inflation has actually improved a little bit, and most of the decline and the rate of change came from energy. So basically, energy prices have gone down, gasoline prices have gone down, and this in turn has helped headline inflation come down. However, on uh, the core inflation side, what we're seeing is used cars and trucks still remain relatively sticky. It's still accelerating at 4.4%. And then we have shelter inflation, which isn't moving much. And this, again, is another problem. So by May, June, we had hoped that we would see some um, more of an effect in shelter inflation coming down, let's say. But instead, what we're seeing is it's remaining stagnant. So overall, on a yearly basis, we are seeing the number come down. So it's come down from 8.1% to 8% last month. Um, And in fact, it had peaked at around 8.2%. So 
We are seeing slight changes, but not enough to say that shelter inflation is coming down. And just to remind everyone, shelter inflation actually includes rents and hotel prices as well. So one of the things that's keeping shelter inflation high over the last couple of months has been uh, hotel rates. So we've seen hotels and motels actually increase their rates massively and people are traveling a lot. And this is what has kept the shelter inflation portion high. However, we are also seeing rents re-accelerate. So if you, we look at the monthly rental index, we see from month to month, rents have actually gone up in the U.S., which is not something we want to see. However, there's probably no choice because we have very low inventory in housing. So it's a very, very tight housing market, even though mortgage rates are very high. And at the same time, people are deferring purchases. So uh, their only choice right now is perhaps to rent. And with that kind of a situation, it becomes a landlord's market, right? And so uh, landlords are raising rents across the board. And this is something we're seeing not just in the U.S., but across the world, in fact, wherever we're seeing a tight housing market. So these are some of the things that we saw in the CPI numbers. We're looking for these numbers to improve next month, at least on the headline basis. Um, but core inflation and services inflation will be what we will be monitoring very closely. Absolutely. And I'm going to echo a lot of what you said, because we saw similar factors in PPI. We saw a headline actually down 0.3% month over month, which could give us a little bit of cold comfort here on the inflation front, particularly for the potential for pass-through. The forecast was for 0.1% of a drop. So we got a larger drop by two-tenths of 1%. Core came in in line at two-tenths of 1% of an advance month over month. And that makes sense because most of the fall in the headline number had to do with gasoline and overall energy prices falling similar to what we saw in CPI. And this just also illustrates something that's very important for everyone listening to understand. If you haven't already made this connection, energy plays a very big role in headline inflation. And headline inflation tends to track the price of oil. There's a pretty good positive correlation there when you look at CPI and you look at oil. So when oil starts to rise, typically within several weeks or maybe two months, you'll start to see it pass through to inflation. It's because the world runs on oil. Everything uses oil, right? Whether it's farming or transporting those farmed goods or refrigeration along the way or transporting them back to your home or all the different types of commerce going to work and back, everything that we think of, it's really all an oil-driven world for energy, but then there's also lots of derivatives of oil that have to be used for things like plastics and pharmaceuticals and otherwise. So when the price of oil goes up, it has an impact on goods, it has an impact on services, and that has an impact on inflation. So it's very important to kind of keep that in context because we saw a reasonably nice drop in gasoline prices in May, and that helped to alleviate some of the headline inflation pressure. But a theme that we continue to see that is concerning is that core remains a little stubborn. Now, 0.2% month over month isn't the worst reading for core, right? If we annualize that, it's 2.4% a year. That's acceptable. That's something that we could tolerate, but we need to see that pass through to core CPI and core PCE. And for the reasons Aisha's discussed, that's just not happening quite yet. When we look at prices for final demand goods, they dropped 1.6% 
the largest decrease since falling 1.6% in July of 2022. Most of the May decline from BLS, uh, they say, is attributable to the index for final demand energy, which we discussed, dropping 6.8%, right? So that's a big role that energy is playing here. When it moves, it really does push the index around. Now, here's in, an interesting little tidbit on the other side, just looking at gasoline and the impact that it has. 60% of the May decline in the index for final demand goods can be traced to a 13.8% drop in gasoline prices during the same month. Further underscoring that, large impact. Indexes for diesel fuel, chicken eggs, jet fuel, fresh and dry vegetables, iron and steel scrap also fell. And we did see just a small increase in the price of tobacco products, which kind of bucked the trend and advanced 1.7%. We also saw signs of softening in transportation, which makes sense with the drop in energy. Of course, we heard diesel fuel is another area where there was a drop. So that's going to get passed through in relatively short order. Food prices also fell for producers 1.9%. So we're seeing some encouraging signs. I wouldn't necessarily say that we're out of the woods quite yet. A lot of that has to do with relief brought to us by energy, which may or may not be transitory, right? And it really has everything to do with what happens in a rather tight market. Does demand continue to drop and continue to provide relief? Or do we see some interruption in supply, move oil prices higher, a geopolitical event, a um, weather-related event, or some other type of issue? So that's one of the reasons that this data can end up being volatile. That's also one of the reasons that we have a core measure, so that we can look at it without food and energy, because those prices do tend to jump around quite a bit. So overall, this seems like good news for inflation in general. So overall, CPI, PPI at the headline level seem to be coming down, um, particularly in terms of food and energy, which is good news um, for the country and for the people. Um, so the other data point, interesting data point that we got last time, and this is something that we get actually every week. Um, but what made it interesting last time was that the number has actually gone up substantially. And this was initial jobless claims. So we've been seeing jobless claims more or less stagnant at the 230,000 level or so. But for the past two weeks, in fact, the number has gone up to 262,000. So, and this is up over 30% since January. So that's that's quite substantial. And in fact, if you look at the four-week moving average, it's now 249,000, which is the highest it has been since October, November 2021. So when you look at a data point in isolation, it might not seem significant, but when you're looking at the trend, things are moving, right, in the labor market and not for the better. So with unemployment claims coming up or going up rather, we are likely to see more softening in um, the labor market. And that's exactly what the Fed wants to achieve. However, I, you know, according to most statistics and um, past information, what we know is that we need this unemployment claims to sort of cross 300,000 before it can make a difference to the unemployment rate. And with that, we also did a slightly deeper dive into the labor market last week on Macrovisor. So what we found is that the lagging data still shows that the labor market remains 
quite tight overall. As I just said, the unemployment claims still haven't reached the point where we can say that the labor market is starting to break. However, what's interesting is this isn't surprising at all. So if you look at the unemployment rate uh, versus the Fed fund rate, what we see is the unemployment rate almost always falls during a tightening cycle. And it's usually the lowest right before the recession. So this month, we saw the unemployment rate inch up ever so slightly. Um, That's one data point. We're seeing jobless claims go up. We're seeing average hours worked come down. We're seeing quits rates come down. We're seeing self-employment rates come down. We're seeing productivity still remain negative. Um, The only issue here is that wage growth is still too high, you know, relative to normal levels or average levels. So uh, the employment cost index is still well above four, whereas it needs to come down to the long run average of two and a half to 2.6% for it to really make a dent in, you know, the labor market. And according to Bridgewater, one of the things that we need to see is a 20% decline in profits corporate profits, in order to effectuate this change in the labor market. While we hope that, you know, the labor market continues to remain tight, or at least comes out of this situation with the least amount of damage, let's say, unfortunately, it is a condition for inflation to come down and to come down within the Fed's 2% target rate. So it's almost impossible to believe that we're going to hit that 2% inflation target without having a substantial increase in unemployment or a substantial decrease in GDP growth. So both these items go, or rather, let's say all three of these items go hand in hand, unfortunately. And we are going to have to see some softening in the data there. I agree. I think those are really good points. And I just want to add in that, you know, we still have over one and a half jobs on offer for every one person on unemployment insurance. So further evidence of that tight labor market, labor force participation remains very low as well versus historical norms. And that feeds into it. And really, and this is a theme we continue to talk about both behind the scenes and on Macrovisor's website and elsewhere on our spaces, we need to see some more evidence that the services industry is is not just slowing. We've seen the slowing, right? Last reading was 50.3, so it's marginal expansion. We actually need to see some contractionary readings there, right? Because the services are, are three quarters of the economy. That's where most of the employment is. And until they really start to show some meaningful slowing, some negative growth, it's it's likely we won't see that, that 300K print sequentially. We won't see uh, as much of an impact. We really, I think, sadly for inflation to break, We need to see the services industry roll over a bit. And so that brings us to the next topic. You know, we've been looking at sentiment from consumers and, of course, businesses as well. Businesses are not terribly happy, but we're going to focus a little bit on consumer sentiment, which had a surprisingly strong reading. In fact, I was I was caught off guard by just how good it was uh, versus, you know, what what we may have reasonably expected here. It came in at sixty three point nine. The forecast was for 60.1, and the prior reading was 59.2. The main reason that consumers were increasingly optimistic was a 28% rise in basically expecting the economy 
to continue to do better than they thought that it would have in earlier readings. So this was a 20% or I'm sorry, a 28% increase above its historic low from just one year ago. So we're definitely seeing some signs that sentiment among consumers is rising, which is good for American households. It's a sign that they're feeling better about the economy, but it may not be great for inflation. And the reason is that consumers are such a powerful force. They're two thirds of GDP activity. And if they're feeling like it's a good time to start spending again, then they may actually, ironically, undermine the next expectation, which came in surprisingly better than expected. And that is year ahead inflation expectations were down for the second month in a row. And they fell from 4.2% in May to 3.3% in June. And that represents the lowest figure since March of 2021. So people are feeling as if the worst is behind them for inflation. And they're starting to change their outlook on the economy in no small part because of that changed outlook. And I think that's important to take into consideration because a lot of consumer behavior is driven by sentiment and psychology. So if they're starting to feel more comfortable, they're more likely to be more aggressive, spending on items, you know, borrowing even at high interest rates if they have the capacity to do so. So I would just say between what we see here some of the signs that we're seeing in the inflation and labor market just being a little bit more resilient at the core level of the inflation and in the services area of the labor market, and then consumers starting to feel better, we need to keep an eye on this data. This is something that could potentially, if it, it continues to shift in this direction, add some pressure to inflation in certain areas, particularly in the services industry. And if we do see that, then that's going to unfortunately hinder the Fed's ability through policy to reduce demand such that we can get this inflation down to a level where maybe we can see a little more relief. So something for us all to take into consideration, every little data point tells a story, right? The numbers always tell a story, but when we tie them all together, that's when we can see the big picture. Next up, we have retail sales. So retail sales came in the day after the Fed and most people are discussing that it came in better than expected. Now, while that's true because the expectation was for a negative number or a decline in retail sales, we saw a positive number. But the positive number month on month was 0.3%. So a very low positive number. And in fact, it slowed from last month's 0.4%. Now, if we look at it on a year-on-year -year basis, it looks even uglier, unfortunately. So on a year-on-year -year basis, <clears throat> May came in at 1.6%, so a growth of 1.6%. But if you look back just to February, we see that the growth in retail sales on a year-on-year -year basis were still at 5.3%. So that's a massive deceleration, even in just three months, right? Um, and in fact, if you take out autos, um, the number was even worse. So total retail sales, excluding autos, was 0.1% growth month on month. Um, and that sort of translates into a year-on-year -year growth of negative 0.3%. So here you have your negative number. So things are not exactly 
worth celebrating, I would say. Um, the big reduction in retail sales came from gasoline prices coming down. So gasoline at the pump came down at 2.6%. Unfortunately, um, this was offset by an increase in business in building materials by 2.2%. So we are seeing pressure in the housing market. We've spoken about this. There is a shortage of housing inventory. And we're hearing from the home builders as well, who's been talking about this on, we heard from Lenar, in fact, last week, uh, who told us that new orders are improving, average prices are improving, and so are backlogs. So home building is coming back again. Um, purely for the fact that there isn't enough inventory in the U.S. housing market, right? And so building materials <laughs> have been going up over the last month. Um, so, but overall, it's the auto sales that has, you know, sort of boosted the retail prices or the retail sales number. And we saw that with the CPI as well. And auto sales makes up 20% of the index. So that was pretty much a big, let's say, tailwind for the number, for the overall number. But when we look at this, you know, and compare it to a year ago or compare it to like a year and a half ago, retail numbers are seriously slowing. So what what the Fed has been trying to achieve, demand destruction, that is happening in the economy. And it's um, it's only a matter of time <clears throat> before we see more negative numbers, even on a year-on-year basis. Yeah, I think that's really important. And retail sales, it's one of these numbers that we get in nominal terms, unlike GDP, which we get in real terms. So when we look at retail sales in real terms, it's it's actually been sideways to down since May of 2021. So if we look at it based on what people are buying and, and kind of what they're getting for their money, they're spending more to get the same or less. And often they're they're moving more towards the necessities rather than the discretionaries, right? That's, that's not a, at that point, just if you're voting with your dollars, and, and that's sort of a barometer of how well you're doing as a household. That's not sending a very good message, is it? No, it's not. And that connects us to the manufacturing industry as well, because what's sold on the shelves of stores is, of course, to some degree coming out of manufacturers, both domestic and international. But let's focus a little bit on the Empire State Manufacturing Survey, which we got in last week. And actually, it came in quite a bit better than expected. This was another one where I thought it was pretty interesting. Now, it wasn't quite as encouraging as maybe people were hoping for, but it certainly gave us some cause for optimism for the state of New York, which the previous reading was negative 31.8. The expectation was 15. And the reading that we got was 6.6, right? So this was a big, big change from what the expectation was. And it was also significantly different than what we had seen the prior month. Now, the good news is that that survey is not showing a contraction anymore. But the bad news is that it's not necessarily cause for a lot of optimism because there was only a slight increase in new orders. And part of the survey was also changed by an improvement in outlook. But if, you know, increased shipments, a slight increase in new orders and an improved outlook are the basis for this thing going out of deep contraction to slight expansion, it's not necessarily enough to hang one's hat on, right? So there's also a capital spending index within 
it only increased seven points to eight, suggesting that capital spending plans remained kind of soft. This could indicate caution among businesses about significant investments in the current environment. So their optimism is increasing, but not enough to really start putting their money where their mouth is. That tells you something pretty important about what the survey is giving us. It's, it's basically we're coming out of the trough. We're not necessarily back into the sunlight yet. And continued contraction in employment and work hours. As, as along with a soft capital spending plan that we just talked about, suggests that there remain challenges in the manufacturing sector, at least in the state of New York. The lack of a build in new orders or backlog also indicates that business conditions remain not so great, right? And we saw even more of that from the Philly, Philly Fed Manufacturing Index as well, which came out on the same day. It came in marginally better than expected by 0.2, but it was still a negative reading by negative 13.7. So we're seeing multiple Fed surveys in the manufacturing industry that are showing, you know, contraction or mild expansion. But at the ISM level, we also at the headline have nine months in a row of contraction and 13 months in a row of falling new orders. These things matter because they accumulate. Manufacturing as a, as a industry is about a quarter of the economy. So it's not everything, but it's typically a leading indicator, and it's more sensitive to these changes in business and economic conditions. So we tend to see it fall first. And that's why we say the first domino has kind of fallen, but we need to see what happens in services, how that impacts employment, and finally, the aggregate impact on GDP. But our analysis suggests that if the services industry does experience a multi-month downturn, like more than three months, and it's very likely that we'll see unemployment tick up commensurate with that level Aisha was talking about, jobless claims of 300,000 or more per week, and then that builds into unemployment rising and the economy beginning to slow into contraction. So it's not about timing the recession as much as it is about knowing the last steps that we may need to see moving ahead of it. And one thing that Aisha and I were talking about off mic that she brought up they thought was a very good point is often you see housing give us a sort of counter cyclical bounce before a recession. And it very much feels like that's sort of the environment we're in. We've got this ephemeral supply and demand imbalance, but once things get tougher, that demand is probably going to be a lot more soft. So that kind of wraps up the looking back portion here. And Aisha, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you're working on to share with the audience at Macrovisor on our website. Right. So this week, I wanted to take a little bit of a deeper dive on corporate credit and what's going on in that world. So we have maturity walls coming up. I know the S&P has pushed out their maturity wall in general um, until 2025, I want to say, and between 2025 and 2030, actually. So where debt is concerned, the S&P is actually doing quite well. Their interest coverage ratios are great. Their debt service coverage ratios are great. Um, and there may actually be some opportunity there in the investment-grade space. But in general, we want to look at investment-grade credit versus high-yield credit, um, structured products. So we want to look at CLOs, mortgage-backed securities, and in general, what's happening in the credit market, just to see if we can find opportunities in that market. Absolutely. And, you know, that's a very interesting topic to consider because we are finally past this era of financial repression. The Tina trade or the idea that there is no alternative to equities 
is behind us for now. We're we're seeing generational, if not multi-generational opportunities in fixed income. So this will be an ongoing theme at Macrovisor. We've also already talked about treasury bills being attractive at current yields because it's a short maturity. You're getting a great yield. There's opportunities to get tax ad, uh, advantage treatment if you're in the U.S. Obviously, talk to your financial advisor and your accountant. Make sure that it's all good with them. But these are ideas that we're coming up with because we're seeing the beginning of the great rotation. We see it in the flows and it's having an impact on where there's opportunity and, and where there's not. And I should, it's pretty extraordinary to think that equity risk premiums are now at the lowest level since 2001. Indeed, and that's not how it should be, but these are good things to explore as we go along. Absolutely, and it makes fixed income even more attractive, which allows me to segue pretty effortlessly into the next area. We're gonna talk a little bit about this theme that I'm gonna be creating a video about the shift, the transition, if you will, from abundance to scarcity. It's a topic I've been talking about since last year on various social media platforms and in some of my work. But now we're going to create a video exclusive to Macrovisor members that talks about not only the shift from abundance to scarcity, but some of the op investment opportunities that could come out of this shift. Even though it sounds gloomy and doomy, the reality is that with everything out there, there's always an opportunity. And this is a situation where there may be opportunities that could go on for many years and possibly lead the next credit cycle. So the five pillars, really, of this idea of scarcity are a scarcity of capital, a scarcity of labor, a scarcity of energy, a scarcity of available land for agriculture and available water for agriculture, and a scarcity of base metals. These themes all intertwine and could become a big problem as we get into the next credit cycle, and we don't have enough of these necessities. We don't have enough capital, certainly at a rates that people want. Credit conditions are already tightening significantly. We don't have enough labor. The structural inelasticity in the labor market could be set to continue. We don't have enough energy. We haven't explored enough. We actually had the lowest discoveries in 2021 in 75 years. So we're still in an area where energy supply versus demand is, is somewhat inelastic. If we have normalized demand, energy prices could go quite a bit higher. And of course, we don't have enough key base metals, for example, copper. Inventories are at some of their lowest levels in history. So why does this all matter? Because it sets up for a completely different type of cycle. And it's something that we're going to talk about more in the week ahead on Macrovisor. So everyone, I want to thank you all for tuning in. We really appreciate your support. And if you enjoy our work, check out our website at macrovisor.com. If you're listening to this podcast on one of the major podcast services like Apple, Amazon, Google, or Spotify, please consider writing us a review. 